I'm excited to be in the house of the Lord today. Aren't you? Amen. Amen. Listen, the church never stopped being the church. Even when we weren't together, <clears throat> we are still the church. People were talking up Jesus, having gospel conversations with one another. I had a chance just about 10 days ago, just a few days ago, to lead a lady to the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we still be in the church, man. And one of these days, we're going to get everything back together again, and uh, we'll be talking about 2020. I'm praying that uh, 2021 will start day after tomorrow. And uh, yeah, amen. And let's move it on and, and put this behind us and keep rolling until Christ comes again. I'm so glad to see everybody here today. Everybody looks so good, and uh, appreciate you being here this morning, here at the early church. And uh, we're grateful for those of you at Spanish Trail. You just got one church going on over there today. Well, let's welcome the Spanish Trailers into the house this morning. All the nine-milers say hey to the Spanish Trailers. We love y'all and uh, praying that y'all have had a good morning already today. And to those of you that are worshiping with us online, we know many of our folks uh, still feel better about um, not gathering in large groups. And listen, we respect that. This thing's not over yet. So everybody's got to use their best judgment, and we're trying to utilize precautions here as we gather together uh, at each of our two campuses. But know that where you are, we're thinking of you, and we love you, and we pray that God would richly bless you and encourage you uh, as God's people join together to worship Him. Our Bibles are open uh, two different places today, <clears throat> one at the front of your Bibles, one at the back of your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. I've kind of turned this into a little mini-series, mostly about the people of God and the worship of God, Exodus chapter 19. And then if you want to mark uh, second, or 1 Peter, rather, chapter 2, uh, we'll be cross-referencing there here in just a few minutes. Exodus chapter 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We're going to go back once again to the mountain of God. If you were here with us last week, either locally or uh, in an online way, uh, you know that uh, we took uh, the nation of Israel from Rephidim, where they'd been encamped for some time, uh, to southern Sinai, I think, that's where the mountain of God was, in the desert, and we've got them now to a place that they're going to remain throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. God's going to appear to them, and He's going to appear to them in an unmistakable kind of way. More about that in the days to come. But they're here at this 8,000-foot monument of rock, the traditional site known as Jebel Musa. There's a Catholic monastery on it today, and you can visit the mountain and even visit the monastery as far as I know. And they're there. They're going to have a meeting with God. But before the people of Israel have this life-changing meeting with God. They'd had appearances of God up to this point during their seven, eight, nine weeks of marching through the desert, but they'd never had a meeting like they were preparing to have. And before God would meet with them, God would first meet with their leader in a way very similar, but even, I think, more dramatic then the first time God met with Moses, there on the very same mountain from which God called him and sent him to the Pharaoh with a very simple message, let my people go. Now Moses has come full circle, back where he started, and he is preparing 
for another life-changing meeting with God. Let's take a quick stroll through the passage, same passage we dealt with last week, but let's read it again in case some of you may have missed it. Verse 3 of Exodus 19, the Lord called to Moses out of the mountains saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, if you were here last week, perhaps you will remember that in this uh, wonderfully important passage of Scripture that some scholars say are at least among the most important words in the entire Old Testament, some say even the most important, God addresses three very important questions that pertain to who He is and who the people of God are. We talked about those last week. Question number one, who is God? God identifies Himself in three very significant ways here to the people by way of important reminder. He reminds them that he's their deliverer, that God is their Savior, that he's the one indeed who knew of their plight and who chose them and the God who brought them out. But secondly, he reminds them that he's their sustainer as well as their deliverer. He's the God who has provided everything that they needed, whether it be turning bitter water sweet or providing water from a rock or providing manna in the desert or quail from the east or miraculous deliverance from an Egyptian army or from an Amalekite army. No matter what it was, God was their eternal provider, the one who not only brought them out, but the one who kept them strong. But also he identifies himself as their father, Not in that particular word, but by the way that he describes himself to them. He's not only the one who brings them out, he is the God by his own testimony here who draws them close. I brought you out, God told them, in order to bring you to myself. That's just an incredibly important statement of love and tenderness, of compassion and grace from the God of all creation who loves his human creation more than anything else he's ever made. I brought you to myself. That was question number one, who is God? And God identifies himself once again to his people. Question number two, what does God require? What does God require? And the answer to that question is very simply, God requires obedience. God brings us out of our condition of slavery, whether it was for them, slavery to Egypt, or for ourselves, slavery to sin. God brings us out for a reason, namely to know Him and to live in ways that bring honor and glory to Him. He has created, as we'll see here in just a moment, a unique people. And as unique people, we're to be different from all of the other peoples on the earth. And he wants them to keep his covenant. This is the first time this phrase, keep my covenant, is used by God. But that's basically what he tells Moses to tell the people. I brought you out to bring you to myself 
for you to know and understand my covenant and then to keep it. In other words, to live in full and complete obedience to a law that they had yet to receive. Now in Exodus chapter 20, the very next chapter, we're going to see God give the law to Moses. First in the form of the Ten Commandments and then later throughout the rest of the books of Moses, that law will be explicated and subdivided and expanded upon, but God begins the process here of informing His people as to what His holy, good, moral, and ceremonial law is and what it's all about. He hadn't given it to them yet, but He's about to give it to them, and He makes clear in Exodus chapter 19, right here at the mountain of God, He makes it very clear, the law is coming, my standard is coming. And before he ever gives it to them, before they ever have an inkling of what that law is or what it's going to mean in terms of their own life, God wants them to know when you do get it, understand this from the get-go, I expect you to obey it. It's that important to me because it's by obedience to the law that you'll demonstrate your uniqueness among all the people groups of the entire world. It's his way of communicating to his people that he not only is a holy God, but he expects his people to live holy lives. Be holy, God will later say, for your Father in heaven is holy. And the law was given principally to help the people understand what that kind of behavior would look like. And that leads to a final issue that God addresses with Moses, and that is something that concerns the identity of his people. And we barely had time to touch on this, is why it's the subject that we address today, namely the question, who are we? God addresses the issue, who am I? He addresses the issue, what do I require? And now he turns the attention outward to the people. Who are you? So that the people could understand who they were, their true identity. I know a lot of people that spend the bulk of their life trying to figure out who they are. I'm just trying to find myself. Now, it's one thing for an 18-year-old to say that, but for somebody who's 59 still trying to find out who they are, that's problematic. And I can clear all of that up today in terms of helping you identify who you are from the perspective of God. A lot of people don't even know that. They don't know what to say in response to that. They're like the character that Jim Carrey played in the movie The Majestic. It's about a guy who found himself accused of being a communist. He was a screenwriter. He was one of those many Hollywood types who was dragged before the Joseph McCarthy hearings and accused by the Un-American Activities Committee, the United States Congress, of being a communist. And one night as he was driving home, he has a wreck and he bumps his head in the wreck and he suffers a classic case of amnesia. He has no idea who he is, no idea where he's come from, no idea where he's supposed to belong. He has no inkling about the relationships of his life. And he spends the better part of the movie renovating an old theater called The Majestic, trying to put it back together while he searches for clues that'll help him understand his identity. So many people live just like that. They really don't understand who they are, where they've come from, what their future is to be about. I mean, if you were just asked the question, who are you? If someone came up to you after church is over and say, hey, who are you? 
You gave them their name, and they looked at you and said, well, that's good. That's a good first start, but I'm looking for something much deeper than that. Who are you? How would you answer that question? What facts would you include? And it's important for us as the people of God to be able to address that very same question in terms of what it means to be a believer. Do you know what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know how following Jesus as a person of faith affects your identity so that you can clearly explain how God looks at you, how God sees you? What does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to belong to the church, the people of God? That's the very question that God answers for the people of Israel here in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's just a great statement. And it's a great statement because principally, it's not the only time it's in the Bible. And what we have here is important language that's taken by Peter and co-opted in the New Testament and applied to the people of God known as the church, Jew and Gentile. So what God tells to Israel way back in Exodus chapter 19 concerning them as his people, the same things that God tells to them in answer to the question, who are we, is exactly the same things that Peter tells us as the church living on this side of the cross, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very same thing that describes who we are today. Look at how Peter phrases it in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you, New Testament believers, you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, with those two scriptures as our backdrop this morning, let's just kind of pause here for a few minutes, because from the voice of God Himself, we have two remarkable statements that help us to identify who we are as the very people of God. I'm going to give you three things to write down this morning. First of all, you'll notice that the Bible describes us as God's treasured possession. Now, that ought to make you feel real good this morning. Because God's made a lot of wonderful things that we can view with our eyes, things that are indeed majestic, things that are powerful, things that are awe-inspiring, but none of them are described as a treasured possession from the perspective of God. Only the people of God are described that way. That's the language God uses for His people called Israel here in Exodus 19.5. You are my treasured possession among all people. Circle the word treasured if you're taking notes this morning. That indicates something of tremendous value, inestimable value, the most prized possession of a king's treasury. That would be the word that would apply to it. And here in Exodus, it's the first of three important descriptors uh, that are co-opted 
by Peter in his application of the message. Uh, It's the first of the three descriptors listed uh, by Moses in the Old Testament, but Peter lists it last in his description, likely uh, to emphasize uh, more than anything else. But notice again verse 9. He uses a little bit different language, but it basically communicates the same thing in 2 Peter 2.9. But you are a people for God's own possession. The NIV says, you are a people belonging to God. But that, doesn't, that kind of misses, a people belonging to God kind of misses the force. We are God's possession. And you couple this with the language that's used in the Hebrew Old Testament, and you, you see that the possession that we are to God is something of incredible value, something that words really cannot describe. We are God's own possession. Now, most of you know that in the Old Testament, Israel was indeed God's special people. In fact, they were a people that were no people at all. They were like not around until God chose them. And he started with one, this guy named Abraham. And and why did God choose Israel, this nation that wasn't a nation until it started with one, and then Abraham had a son, and his son had a son, and so forth and so forth, until they became innumerable, as God said would happen. Why did God choose them? Were they especially gifted? Was it because of their intellect? Was it because of their creativity? Did God choose them because they were super talented, because they were powerful, they were warlike, fierce, maybe because they were super cultured? Not quite the opposite. Something that, in fact, it was totally, completely different from all of those reasons, wasn't it? That's why it remains a mystery to many people. In fact, uh, the poet Ogden Nash wrote a little couplet one time, it's the simplest poem ever written, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Simple poem, amen. And yet, how profound, because oddity of oddities, for God to choose the Jews as His special people is totally counterintuitive. The simple answer to the question, why did God choose Israel? Because He did. Because God is sovereign. God's choice of Israel was as a result of God's sovereign divine choice. And the Bible makes that clear, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look beginning in verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord, what? Say it out loud. Loves you choice because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, let me say that same divine choice resides on us as the people of God today. The same is true for the church. King James Bible uses the word peculiar And it uses it both in Exodus chapter 19 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, most of the time when we use the word peculiar, we use it in a pejorative sense, don't we? Somebody's weird if they're peculiar. Somebody messed up if they're peculiar. They're different in a bad kind of way. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word peculiar. It uses it in the sense of uniqueness, different, 
We are God's unique people, God's exclusive possession, His special treasure, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, a people called the church. Now, make no mistake, I still believe God has a plan for it. I don't believe God's finished with Israel yet. I don't think you can read Romans 11 and come to that conclusion. God has an end times plan, uh, the degree of which is somewhat mysterious, but for sure God's not finished with Israel. And God will fulfill His promises to Israel. He has not written them off as a people. But in the meantime, to use Paul's language in Romans 11, the Gentiles, which is most all of us, in case you don't know, you're a Gentile if you're a non-Jew, all of us have the privilege of being grafted into the vine, grafted in, brought in as part of the people of God. And the end result of Gentiles being grafted in, principally through the preaching of Paul in the New Testament, the early church, the end result of that is the church, God's family. And it's a people made unlike Israel of the Old Testament. The people of God are not composed of people identified by bloodline. We're identified by faith line. Somebody say amen this morning. We're identified by faith line, by what we believe. Membership in the people of God is based on faith, not by race. So the church is composed of people of all races. Man, that's a good word for times like today. Amen. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, the gospel, I've said it a thousand times, the gospel is for the nations. It's for all people all over the world. I'm not opposed to having an American flag in here, and we do. We're proud of our country. But if we were really doing it right, we'd have a flag of all the nations around this worship center today. Because that's what the gospel is about. It's not just about Americans. It's about people regardless of race, regardless of citizenship, regardless of who they are, the color of their skin, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Think of the most treasured possession you own. If I were to ask you, what's the most valuable possession you own? Maybe it's an autographed baseball. I've got a few of those. Maybe it's a rare piece of history. Maybe it's a family photograph. Maybe you've got a rare book or a rare coin. People pay all kinds of money for those kinds of things. Not long ago, Leonard Fournette, who's a running back in the National Football League, sold a game-used jersey that he used when he was in college at LSU, and it brought $100,000. I'm not sure why anybody paid $10 for anything that had LSU on it, but that's a different story for another day. Oh, yeah, I said it. $100,000. Not long ago at auction, someone bought a bottle of wine that came from Thomas Jefferson's cellar, was discovered, paid over half a million dollars for it. That was such a story that a book was written. I have the book. It was a compelling read. Half a million dollars. That's somebody's got more money than they've got since. A couple of years ago, the Salvador Mundi of Leonardo da Vinci, one of his most famous paintings, sold at auction for just under half a billion dollars, $500 million. I mean, people that have it sometimes pay it for big ticket items. And so does God, because you're a big ticket item to God. In fact, you're the biggest ticket. And God paid 
an eternal price, the death of his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And that price was the eternal blood of the eternal Son of God given just for you. We are God's treasured possession. Everybody with me, say amen. Secondly, we are kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Here in Exodus 19, God says that his people are priests. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Look at 1 Peter 2, 5, and you'll see how Peter again takes this language and uses it to help identify one of the functions of the church. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy what? priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you've never thought of yourself as a priest. Um, But let me just ask a question. How many of you would testify that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? You've been born again by faith. Would you say amen? Well, then that makes you a priest. How about that? You just didn't know it. Some of you didn't. No, the Bible says that's what we are if we know Jesus. And together we become a body of priests. Or to use this language, we become a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? Two very important things. It means a lot of things, but let me just highlight what I think are the two most important things that it means. Because it's important that you realize this. This is one of the things that differentiates us as evangelicals from our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. Because in the Roman Catholic tradition, the, like the formal priest are the priest, right? And you've got to go through them to have a relationship with God. They hold grace. Those priests hold grace in their hands, and they have to distribute it to you through the seven sacraments of the Roman church. And so you've got to have those guys in order to be a partaker of the grace of God. Evangelicals see it differently. We believe in what's known as the priesthood of every believer. In fact, we as a church are a church of priests before God. And again, that has some important privileges and some important responsibilities. One of the great privileges that we have because when we're saved, we become a priest unto God is that means we have direct access to God. The Old Testament priests of Israel had access to God, and only one of those guys had special access to God, and only he had it one time a year. But we have immediate access to God anytime, anywhere, all the time. Priests were, in the Old Testament, mediators between the people and God. And by the way, in the Old Testament, not, anybody just couldn't be a priest. You couldn't go up and say, you know what, I feel like God called me to be a priest. And the first thing that somebody would tell you is, let me see your membership card in the tribe of Levi. Because unless you're the tribe of Levi, you, can't, you don't even qualify to be a priest. So not everybody could be a priest. I mean, it was a very select group. And not every priest in the tribe of Levi had the same privileges. Only that high priest could go into the holy of holies. And he had to be spit-shined, ceremonially washed, and he only went in there once a year. 
And so concerned was he and others about him messing up, they would literally tie a rope around his leg so that when he went in there, if he messed up somewhere and God struck him dead, they could drag him out. But something wonderful happened when Jesus died. The Bible says at that moment, the moment that Jesus made his last cry from the cross, to tell us die, it is finished. The veil of the temple, that 50-foot tall, heavy curtain that separated the people from God, from the presence of God, in the holy of holies of the temple of God, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And that was highly, hugely symbolic because it demonstrated now that the presence of God was wide open to those who know God because everybody who knows God by faith now as a priest has direct access to God. This is really spelled out fundamentally and most beautifully in the letter to the Hebrews where we're reminded we don't have to go through a human priest anymore because we're already one. Therefore, if you find yourself like Tom Hanks deserted on a desert island, you can worship the Lord on that desert island all by yourself. You don't have to wring your hands and say, oh, if I only had a priest here with me. No, you don't have to do that because you are one. And now you have unfettered access to God. You go before the presence of a holy God through Jesus Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have access as priest. But then being a priest means not only that, but a life of sacrificial service. This is the responsibility. The privilege we have as priest, access to God. The responsibility we have as priest, faithful service to God. That's what the Old Testament priests were responsible for. They were responsible for this sacrificial service offering all those sacrifices on the altars for the forgiveness of sin. Now, we don't have to offer those, those kinds of animal sacrifices anymore, and aren't you thankful for that? Amen. You don't have to drag an animal to church, and I don't have to slaughter it in church because Jesus paid it all. Somebody say amen this morning. Once for all sacrifice. But here's the thing. On the part of every priest which is every believer, a sacrifice is still important. Not an animal sacrifice, but like the sacrifice of you. You. Did you get up on the altar of sacrifice this morning, offer yourself to God? That's a daily occurrence for every priest in the presence of God today. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You, brethren, sisterin, you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Holy, holy, and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word priest in Latin carries with it this idea not only of service, but service in the form of building bridges, pontifex. We get our word pontiff from it. And in one sense, uh, the, the, the bishop of Rome, who we know as the pope of the Roman Catholic Church, is to fundamentally be a bridge builder to people. Well, that's the role of every Christian people who build bridges between God 
and man, between God and one another, between God and the lost, by pointing them to Jesus Christ. And we're to do it not only with our gospel testimony, but by means of our own lives that have been changed through the presence of Jesus Christ within us by faith, lives that we offer to God every day as a spiritual sacrifice. God's people are His treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And then finally, we are a holy nation, a holy nation. That's word for word what God tells Moses from the mountain. And you, verse 6, shall be to me not only a kingdom of priests, but a holy nation. Peter says it this way to the church, 2 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, and then he uses the same language, a holy nation. And there's the word chosen again, frequently used in the Bible to describe the people of God, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. We are a chosen people called and set apart by God to be a holy nation. I remember when I was in school, we're going to be honoring graduates here in the next hour, but I remember what it was like uh, out on the sand lots and on the basketball courts when we were kids, and we would uh, engage in a game of pickup. You all remember those days you'd have pickup basketball games, you'd have a bunch of boys show up, and you know, two self-appointed studs would end up being team captains, and then everybody would line up, and you remember the routine, don't you? They'd go through alternating one after another, and I choose him, and I choose him, and I choose her, and I choose her until, you know, the last man standing ended up getting chosen. And you can remember what it was like when you're there in the line, and one of the studliest of all stud muffins is up there, and he says, well, I want Jim on my, and boy, you feel good when you're like first round or second round draft choice. But I also know what it's like, particularly on the basketball cards. I'm never good in basketball. And I can remember, you know, starting to shuffle my feet and whistle after a while. Because it was down the 14th round. (laughs) And I still hadn't gone. And you remember what that feels like as well. Well, the Bible says if you know Christ, God has chosen you. You're a chosen part of God's holy nation. You can know that God has accepted you. You can know, regardless of whether anybody else ever accepts you for who you are, you can know as a child of God you've been chosen and accepted by God. Now, if you're here this morning and you, you haven't trusted Jesus to save you, and you're not really a person of great faith. I don't, you don't need to start wringing your hands and say, well, I, how, how in the world am I supposed to know if I've been chosen by God or not? The only way that I know for sure for you to know if you've been chosen by God is when you hear the gospel, you respond to it in faith and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when you do that, you don't have to equivocate anymore. The Bible never tells anybody, try and figure out if you're one of the elect or not. It never says that anywhere in the Bible. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Somebody say amen this morning. That's what it says. The question is, will you receive Christ as Lord and Savior? And for those who do, let me just make it real simple. That's the only way to know whether or not you're one of the chosen. And if you've trusted Christ to save you, there's a lot of mystery in, in terms of that. But one thing I do know in a very mysterious way, you respond to the Lord in faith, you can know 
that you're one of God's chosen, but at the same time, it's also a reminder that before you chose God, God first chose you. And the only way to be saved is for God to show up and to save you. And this is what makes you special in the eyes of God. Several years ago, Focus on the Family did a study of 10,000 women, and he found the number one problem plaguing women generally. You know what the number one problem most women face in America today? Low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. Number one problem. They didn't feel like they were worth anything to anybody. Nobody recognized them. Nobody appreciated them. Nobody loved them. Not in the way they wanted to be loved. Can I say this morning, man, woman, boy, girl, red, yellow, black, and white, you are worth everything to God. He chose you before the world was ever created, a very mysterious kind of way. He sent his son to shed his blood on the cross, dying the cruelest kind of death so that your sins could be forgiven. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we call it good news. The God who knows everything about your life, every fault, every fissure, every foible, every flaw, sent his son to die for you anyway knowing everything about your life. Man, I'm telling you, salvation is a great privilege, like being a priest. There's privileges and there are responsibilities. And knowing that we belong to God is a great privilege, but privilege and being a part of God's family carries great responsibility with it as well, and namely the responsibility that all of us have as being part of God's treasured possession, His holy nation. The responsibility is exactly that, holiness. Holiness. Week after next, that's basically what I'm going to be talking to you about last Sunday in June. From an experience out of this very mountaintop experience that reminds us that God has chosen us and in choosing us, He has consecrated us. He has set us apart again as this peculiar, unique people different from the people groups of all of the earth. And he does that not so that we can strut around like bandy roosters in great pride because, hey, 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 I belong to God. No, God chooses you and that ought to break you, frankly. It ought to humble you. And it certainly ought to remind you that you are not your own. You belong to God. And your principal responsibility is to no longer live for yourself, as the Bible says, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. God sets us apart so that we in humility can live to demonstrate his greatness, to glorify him so that others can know him. And that's why, again, it's why, to use Moses' language, Keeping the covenant, full obedience, to use the New Testament language. It's why that's so important. Because there is no holiness in disobedience to God. That's unrighteousness. So when God saves us and brings us to himself, when his precious treasure becomes a 
kingdom of priests. Never forget, there are global implications involved in that. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Or, as Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. That's why God chose you. That's why God saves you, to use you in order to make him look magnificent throughout all the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is who we are. God's treasured possession, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, consecrated, called, and set apart to live righteously, proclaiming the gospel and doing it all, not for ourselves, not for any worldly benefit, but preaching Jesus to the nations for the glory of God. This is the Word of God. And let all who agree with it say amen this morning.